0: Welcome to Capital RC&D's Conservation Podcast, I'm host Cheryl Burns. Each year, with support from the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection, Capital RC&D coordinates an Autumn Cover Crop Survey and a Spring Tillage or Crop Residue Survey in select counties located within the Chesapeake Bay watershed in Pennsylvania. Survey teams consisting of a driver, often from the county conservation district, an agricultural technician, and a GIS intern, travel a predetermined route in each county during both the autumn cover crop and spring residue survey. The team stops at regular intervals to capture information observed by the technician about land use and agricultural activity, depending on the season, in each spot. The surveys take advantage of a limited time window in the fall between harvest, cover crop emergence, and the arrival of snow, and the window between crop emergence and canopy closure in spring. Because of this tight schedule, only half of the counties are surveyed each year. For example, Center County was last surveyed in fall 2019 and spring 2020, respectively. And then just before last Thanksgiving in November, 2021, I joined ag technicians Joel Myers and Barry France in Center County to help collect data for the Fall Cover Crop Survey, and I took advantage of the opportunity to speak with them about their work, the survey itself, and what we can learn from the data collected. Joel, how did you begin your work in conservation?
1: How did I come to conservation? That's an interesting question. Way back, uh, first of all, I raised on a farm. So I was involved in farming operations. I became aware of soil erosion and so forth on our farm. And uh, working with uh, USDA, uh, at that time, Soil Conservation Service, obviously our mission was to work with farmers to control soil erosion. And back before 1985, we didn't have tools like no-till planters and drills and so forth. We, the, the way we control erosion, we work with farmers on crop rotations using perennial crops along with annual crops with, with conservation practices such as strip cropping where we alternated crops across the slope and manage crop residues in such a way that after we planted the crop, we increased the amount of crop residue on the soil surface. One of the big factors in controlling soil erosion is keeping the soil covered. And we hear about cover crops today and no-till and so forth, but the whole premise is to keep the soil protected. We all know what the raindrop feels like if it hits us on the, on the head, especially if we don't have much hair or sleet or something even more so like sleet. There's a lot of energy hitting that soil surface and causing the beginning of the start of soil erosion and runoff. So,
0: so and, and not only you know have you worked with NRCS, but you also are a farmer, so you've applied these practices yourself. Uh, when did you start using no-till techniques on your own farm?
1: No-till equipment became available in the early 80s. Uh, <clears throat> I vividly remember uh, we had we had a no-till corn planter and I vividly remember a farmer in Dolphin County I was working with he had just purchased a no-till drill and this was before you even heard anything about continuous no-till but in that discussion with that farmer it just like popped out of my head hey we can do everything no-till not realizing the importance of being able to have continuous no-till planting so it wasn't more than a year or two after that, I got a huge no-till drill, and then we could do everything on our farm no-till. And that's how we moved forward with, with no-till and integrated into that as time went on was cover crops and crop rotations. So we put the package together in our farm. I had the luxury of, of working with these things up close on my own farm. We've also done many field days and had classes, Penn State classes, to our farm to observe and learn about this practice or practices.
0: Now, when you first started, did you encounter any issues that that really were a struggle and that frustrated you? Or was it kind of right away you started seeing some of the benefits and knew you needed to keep going?
1: the The only frustration I can remember was the first year we planted corn with the no-till corn planter. We were planting into a, a hay field that was killed that spring prior to planting, and we couldn't get the slot to close behind the court planter. The, the planter made an open trench, the seed was nicely placed, but after the planter went through the field, the slot was still open and the seed was exposed. That was my first exposure to needing to equip a planter properly to do all the things, including seed to soil contact. And I I remember I kind of like hit myself over the head and said, hey, you really got to learn, because I only had one planter and didn't have anything around me to help guide me. I decided, hey, I got to learn this stuff. So I dedicated a winter to really exposing myself to planter attachments and everything was out there. Well, the first thing we did the next year was we took the steel wheels off the corn planter, and we put spike-closing wheels on it. And I, I just use that as an example. And that's how we went forward. So I kind of learned by doing mm-hmm. and looking at other people and or talking to other people and so forth.
2: So Barry, how did you come to conservation? So I was a plant science major in Penn State um, And just looking for job opportunities, and this was at the time when the Natural Resources Conservation Service was the Soil Conservation Service. And my dad actually told me about an opportunity he'd heard about. So I I applied to be a summer intern and got that job in Wellsboro, uh, Tioga County, Pennsylvania, and got a really good impression of the agency. Enjoyed it a lot. Worked with some really good people. I was fortunate that my supervisor was a great guy, uh, Don Lindsay. And um, stayed with it after I graduated from Penn State. I had my first job as a soil conservationist on staff in Union County, Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. And again, had great people to work with. You know, Ed Sokolowski was my DC, another great guy to work with. So, you know, kind of like running two for two there on good experiences, um, good people to work with, um, great working with the farmers in those counties. Spent some time in cambria county got my first district conservationist county manager job in mifflin county and moved to northampton county also as a district conservationist again lots lots of good people i met worked with over the years um came to harrisburg um then not so much as much for personal reasons to be able to be closer to my wife's parents but it was a good geography between her parents and my parents and uh, had some details working with um, the farmland protection process um, when it first started on an assignment with the state and then working on whole farm planning um, Became the state resource conservationist and started working with our conservation cost share programs and I started managing those in 2002 and that that was really a good experience every day was different Um Got to see the entire state going around looking at our projects, talking with farmers all over about what they were doing, you know, how they got the funding to get their conservation projects done, you know, everything from manure storage structures to field work. You know, we funded introductory no-till projects, conservation, cover, you know, cover cropping. The whole line from agronomy to engineering that we were funding, uh, helping farmers get their projects on the ground. That was, a, that was a really good experience. It was pretty much a nonstop job. Um, enjoyed that a lot. Um, was ready for a little change after a while and took a two to three year stint down in Washington working with conservation initi- initiatives at our national office. And that was really eye opening to see how people were doing things in other parts of the country. I got on a few trips out west, um, Midwest, um, Dakotas. Just fascinating to see how people in other parts of the country operate. You know, crop management and the cropland they work with. And actually, part of that was really applicable to this. I was um, the uh, NRCS representative to the Ag Work Group in the Chesapeake Bay Program, okay. and that was really interesting. I got to get more in-depth discussions with people from the other Bay states on what they were doing, what their problems were, what they what they were seeing as opportunities on the Ag end. To, improve the uh, Chesapeake Bay. You know, being the NRCS rep, I spent a lot of time talking with the people about what the conservation practices do, how they might be better reported into the bay model as an example. So this job now is really interesting. The other end of the coin is how do we get the good data to put into the bay model, (laughs) as opposed to being down there is how do we best represent what's happening from these field surveys incorporate that into the whole model to give a true picture of what's happening on the ground so I get an opportunity to see it from both ends the reception end and how it's used and here are the uh, collection end and making sure we got a good information to put into that bay model we
0: have a point coming up at the end of this fence row
2: okay and that last one again was corn grain um, no cover crop uh, right. corn fodder cover Right. Okay, this one. This is corn silage. It's got a small grain cover crop. It was no-till drilled. Um, there's a 50 percent canopy cover and the height is two to four inches high.
0: And the left side?
2: Uh, left side we've got soybeans, um, no cover crop.
0: Okay, we can go ahead. When looking at both the cover crop side and and the spring you know residue and tillage side that kind of gets lost is that it's not just the data isn't just sitting in our computer it's all not just passed around colleagues within the state that it gets funneled into the model um, and is used to make or to help make decisions can you talk about that a little bit how the data um, you know the data informs the model, but what do they use the model for exactly?
2: It, it it's used annually to really show the trends and in, in what's happening in the into the bay. You um, know I'll, I'll say trends because there's recognition it's going to be up and down, up and down, but hopefully a upward trend on reduced runoff, reduced delivery of sediment. Um, and different states might do it different ways on, on how they show some of these. Um, conservation practices, you know, how much there is. So we're doing this survey on the ground in Pennsylvania where we actually physically go out and look at things. And if we have a question, we can get out of the car and actually walk over the ground and look at it. I know Maryland's been doing some remote surveys for things like cover cropping, and there's some really good technology to accomplish that. You know, it's not cheap, um, and they rely on the surveys to do that. I I think what we're doing is, is Really good with the number of points we're taking, and the uh, looking at it on the ground and actually seeing what's happening. So my mind it is equally effective, though I'm not sure, you know, how much that's been evaluated. Um, in other states use like a survey method, where they may send out surveys to farmers, saying, "What practices are you doing?" And, and having the farmers respond back. I did cover cropping. I used rye. I used wheat. I used some other kind of cover cropping or no-till. I, I like this survey idea. To me, it makes sense instead of trying to keep a, a, an exact accounting for everything that's going on on the land, because that is so dynamic. I think it's impossible to keep an exact handle on exactly what everyone in the whole Bay watershed is doing. It's just something that's not accomplishable um, because it changes so quickly.
0: And with our process, we're, we're taking a a set number of points that are representative of agriculture in the county and following a prescribed route through the county and stopping at points each survey year so every other year we stop at the same points and we can see the changes that are occurring um,
2: yeah, I, I've looked at the different data reports of um, farmers who have worked with NRCS to do conservation work whether it was that they paid for it entirely or whether it was funded with cost share money. But I've seen those data sets and kind of know what's in them. And just knowing how those summarize an entire county or summarize, you know, when you aggregate the county to the state level, I I, I really have a lot of faith in this point data that we're taking. You know, the 900, 950 points in a county are really good. It's actually better than some of the reporting I think we are relying on that we, we're trying to report individually the farmers we work with as opposed to we're looking at all the farmers, whether they worked with the government or not. Right. And that's a, another really good angle of it. It really doesn't matter how the farmers got to the point where they did the work. It's that they've done it and we're able to go out there and see it on the ground and get a record of it. And it's, I think, really good accuracy of um, what's happening out there.
0: Over the past few years, when we look at the data, we see in some counties that there's uh, a large reduction in tillage practices, a lot of no-till techniques being used to plant crops in the spring, a lot of cover crops being used in the fall, and then the next time we come, there might be a drop, and, and sometimes it, it, it feels like we're moving backwards. And we've talked about trends, you know, long-term trends show that these practices are increasing. Looking at the body of data that we have from when we started doing the surveys, we see some variability. What can cause this variability from year to year and county to county?
1: I think probably the biggest single factor would be the variability in weather. This past year we've had very, in in some cases, too much rainfall we've had a lot of rainfall. It was difficult in the spring to do timely planting. It's been difficult to do timely harvest this fall. As a result of this, farmers are still out there harvesting corn, in some cases still harvesting soybeans, and it's the it's middle of November, which by this time normally most of the crops are harvested, especially soybeans. Now we typically see cover crops planted after silage corn, which is probably the single biggest place where we can get good conservation, is to not have those bare silage corn fields out there, but have a cover crop. And secondly, we see more cover crop and small grain planted after soybeans. Sometimes this is not planted as a cover crop, it's planted as a grain crop for a harvest next year. Other cases, it's just strictly a cover crop. Which will be where we'll probably have corn planted into it next year. Doing the spring survey following the fall survey allows us to further evaluate the cover crop or the small grain fields we've identified in the fall and determine whether it was truly just a cover crop or it's a, a winter grain crop. In either case, it serves to protect the soil, and I think that's important. That comes back to really crop rotations where we have rotating crops with high residue and crops with lower residue, especially in a no-till system where we can maintain the high residue fields and use cover crops in the low residue fields like after soybeans or, or vegetables to give us cover over the winter into the spring. And one of the key things is in the spring that cover crop protecting the soil when we sometimes have heavy rainfall in the early spring before planting. And that's when soils can erode probably the most. That's the most critical time of the year. If you're going out looking for erosion problems, you want to look in the spring just prior to doing planting or if there's tillage done being doing tillage. So that's, I think that's the biggest single variability. Other Other situations, cover crop seed may be limiting. In, in certain areas certain years. Uh economics can play a role in that. If farmers are really struggling just to buy their seed for next year and and pay their bills, their land rental and so forth to rent land, uh it may just not work for them to spend money for a cover crop seed. So economics, the weather and I I think that, I, I think there's some other variables out there that are just too numerous to really put a handle on. But uh, the biggest single thing is for the farmer to have the, the cover crop seed on hand to get that planted as soon as the, the opportunity permits. I know this year our soybeans weren't harvested till early November, which is two to three weeks late. I was out there planting cover crop before the combine left the field. And I saw more of that this year. So that's important from a timing
2: standpoint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say on that, this survey for Center County that we're doing, we're seeing a lot of good cover cropping in the corn silage, which kind of supports what Joel was saying, that they got that cover cropping on it. It's not that they didn't have other work they could have been doing, but they got a lot of people got cover cropping on the corn silage when they should have, needed to, and it's coming up looking good right now.
0: Now, the other counties that both of you have done, have you seen similar results, just anecdotally?
2: Um, Now, for me, the other counties I saw didn't have as much corn silage. They didn't have as many dairy operations as some of the valleys that we're going through here. So it was a different situation. Now, there I I was seeing, and this was in the spring, um, checking the spring cover, there was a lot of wheat, a lot um, more wheat out there than I think what we're going to be seeing here. So... That was good from the diversity of rotation aspect. And I, that's another thing I forgot. What I was not expecting is seeing that amount of small grain, in this case, winter wheat, yeah. out there for, as opposed to corn, soybeans only. So it was good to see a lot of a third crop in the rotation out there, and
1: along with some hay. Yeah, that's a big a big plus, that third third crop in that rotation. My neighbor, for the first time ever, Always grew corn and soybeans. He actually planted some cover crop this year, with some influence from a couple people. But uh, that's very important. And, and I think, uh, well, Barry mentioned the silage corn. And the, the other counties I was in, Bradford uh, and uh, uh, Clinton County, both had quite a bit of silage corn. Good cover on nearly all the silage corn fields. The grain corn, we don't see a lot of cover crop, and unless the residue is removed, it's it's the, the last place I would hope to have cover crop. I'd rather see it first, as I said earlier, in soybeans after soybeans, especially after silage corn.
0: So what causes some of the variability between counties?
2: I'll take a little shot at it, the uh, type of operations, whether there's a lot of Beef and dairy, I'll say, you know, that's the predominant livestock that affects the land use because they might need more hay or land for manures disposal. So some counties have a lot more cattle than others. Um, When we're looking, the soils are a really big factor. And when they can get out, Adams County is well known for having wetter soils. And that really affects when the farmers can get into the field. And that's going to change every year. Um, Limestone soils are a little better. being able to get in and just valleys and, and swales and, and things like that. So I'd say soils and the border issues are a big factor differences. Climate when you go from the south to the north is huge. Um, you go into you change two or three climate zones from the Maryland border to the New York border, and that that has a big impact on how much time farmers have to get this work done.
0: Well, and even. We notice variability just in the counties that are within the capital R, C, and D footprint. So we see a difference between Lancaster, York, and what happens in Franklin, and, and Adams County, and its topography, and different products that are that are farmed.
2: You know, maybe Jill would comment. and I'm seeing, and this is on the good side, a lot of the smaller operations are adopting these practices now. I think before the larger farmers who could spread the cost of the new equipment out over more acres, adopted it first. And they were using tillage equipment instead of no-till because that's what they had. Mm -hmm. And now I'm seeing the smaller farms adopting these practices too. And where that comes into play is some of these counties where they have, let's say, a limestone valley with bigger farms and good operations. They were maybe some of the early adopters of some of these. But the farmers on some of the smaller farms on the, the hillier ground are starting to adopt them also now. Well and this this
1: is a result of several things. Uh, a number of conservation districts and in some cases uh, ag suppliers may be making no-till equipment available to plant cover crops in the fall. I've seen in, in the Amish and the Plain sect, I've seen they have, you'll see horses out there pulling a no-till drill in the field. So. Uh, I think part of it's a combined effort by the agricultural agencies, the ag industry in those counties, the ones that are more progressive, you're going to see more cover crop. And you asked earlier about, I think to Barry, the biggest surprise, I guess the biggest surprise I've seen is the amount of no-till cover crop. We can tell broadcast cover crop because it's not as uniform, mm-hmm. but, and we can tell if it's no-till by knowing whether or not the residue or the corn stalks have been disturbed. But we, I would say well over 75 percent, maybe closer to 85 percent, of all the cover crops we see are no-tilled. That can be done, make it get done quicker. And again, the more availability of no till drills, one way or the other, is making that happen. Mm-hmm one excuse me one one other thing i'll mention along the same line too uh we talked about back going forwards and backwards we've seen a little bit of a reduction in no-till where we have organic crop production okay that's kind of that's just the way it is however if you talk to a real good organic farmer someone that's a good manager really on top of wanting to have good soil health and everything, they're using as much no-till in their system as they can. Oftentimes they can plant a no-till cover crop and then maybe do tillage in the spring, or maybe they do tillage in the fall, plant a cover crop like oats and radishes that dies over the winter naturally, and then they don't have to do tillage in the spring. They can plant directly into that dead cover crop that our good Lord killed. So, so, if we really manage organic systems properly, or as best we can, we can do that, just as Barry said, we don't do till heavy, we don't use them over or the plow twice a year. Maybe we only use it once every three years.
0: Well, What are some of the reasons why a farmer might till a field, even if they are inclined to use no-till practices?
1: I, I guess, and Barry can comment too, I would say the potential or the actual soil compaction situation, especially in a year like this, where we're harvesting wet fields, we may even plant it wet. Uh, The one thing that we've talked a little bit about is we did our survey here today. I'm aware of a number of these machines now, but the the folks that custom harvested our soybeans, they have a, a combine on tracks. Instead of have wheels, they have tracks on the... It's on the front or the back. It's on the front, on the front of the machine. I planted rye perpendicular to the way they combined our field. I saw no issue at all with compaction when I ran the drill through where the the combine went. And it was wet when they comb I mean, fairly wet when they combined the beans. So we're getting equipment now that can better help us minimize compaction. But I think probably the perception or the actual compaction situation would be the single biggest reason for people wanting to do tillage. and I would say,
2: and I'd put rutting in the field in the fall, like Mm -hmm. we're saying. The the soybean field, where they were able to harvest it without ruts, I think because of better equipment, and without that, there would be ruts in that field, and they would be tilling that field up to smooth out the ruts, so they have a smooth planting surface, Mm -hmm. so they that just avoided two or three actions to try to repair that damage that they don't have to go through now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. and, and
1: really the, the the whole the use of cover crops itself and the firmness of the soil in no-till systems uh, helps avoid those ruts and, uh, and the, the living cover crop, you may plant your cover crop a little bit wet, but those cover crop roots over the winter and into the spring are going to help a lot with that soil compaction. I remember one field down at Steve Ross, or one year of Steve Ross, he had actually made ruts in a long-term no-till field, but he put radishes uh, radishes in that field, and the next year you couldn't even really tell the, that. Now he he leveled the ruts out, mm-hmm. but other than that, he did no tillage, and those radishes took that compaction out. And I've seen research from Sure Diker where it takes four years at least with tillage to get back to where you were before. Right. And I, you talk to people that spread lime in fields, they're going to go to the no-till field to spread lime first in spring. It's going to be firm enough they can drive on it and not leave ruts and basically no minimal compaction.
0: Now we have a lot of local and regional, even statewide and national groups that support no-till practices, but obviously they weren't always available. How long did it take for enough farmers to adopt these techniques or express
1: interest to have these support systems develop? I I don't think it was, in the bigger picture, it was a steady increase, but it seemed like in my own world, there was ups and downs. (laughs) Right. I remember working, I was at D.C. in Dauphin County for a number of years. And I remember <clears throat> the stage I left Dauphin County, there was a number of people had not yet went forward with no-till. One big thing that changed in Dauphin County, the upper part of Dauphin County was green equipment. It was John Deere equipment. As soon as John Deere put out a no-till drill, I bet the first year there was a dozen people in Upper Dolphin County bought John Deere no-till drills. Hey, now we have equipment to to do the whole job. Again, the corn planter plus the, the drill. So that was a jump because of the equipment came out. Some of the herbicides, as new herbicides came out and technology increased with the use of herbicides, that made some, some jumps. So it was kind of like going up steps yeah. and going forward. Now, there was times you fell back a step or two. I remember one year vividly talking to a farmer in Upper Dolphin County. Had him convinced, we're going to no-till this year. And I forget what crop it was. He went to the local farm supplier that sold herbicides. did They did his spraying. Well, guess what they did? They talked him out of doing no-till. <laughs> it hit me like a lead balloon. Here I had all everything set. And somebody from the outside, really my world, did that. Well, I learned a lesson. I gotta work with those people. I gotta get the people that are advising farmers to know about no-till and how to do it. Yeah. So that was a, a big thing to spread, to broaden the group out there. Yeah. And course of course the time moved on. We, we formed a no-till alliance about 12 years ago. I was instrumental in getting that started in Pennsylvania. Today is a very active organization. I think they've expanded to somewhere around 12 members, board of directors now. I know most of them personally, and they're doing an awful lot to help no-till. And I think they've worked with Capital Region Mm -hmm. and and other groups as well. The one one thing I missed in this discussion, uh, Penn State had an individual, uh, many of the folks today would not know him or know his name, but Lynn Hoffman was uh, a few years older than I. He had uh, much more farming experience than I had, and he had been promoting no-till planting for many years. He was kind of my mentor in helping me learn how to reach out to people to do field days, to do winter meetings with no-till and so forth. We did a lot of no-till meetings when actually no-till may not have been right term to attract people. We talked about soil cover. Steve Groff was instrumental in this whole Mm -hmm. movement. And we came up with the theme for the hat, soils meant to be covered. And that was really saying we'd have to use no-till and cover crops. But uh, Steve played a a very important role in how we went to some no-till meetings together. And as I said, Lynn Hoffman at Penn State did an awful lot. So, and I could tell when I traveled around the state as state agronomist, if I went into a county which really had a lot of good conservation practices, no-till cover crops and so forth, I knew the agencies were working together. The counties that struggled. Well, it wasn't the united effort to reach the farmers, from the agencies, the state agencies, to another thing with DEP and the, they finally, it took a while, but they finally learned. Yes, this is a good thing. Right, and so it, it, become, it began. It began to come together, and we're recognized really across the country today in our expert expertise and our advancement in in no-till.
0: If someone is not familiar with no-till techniques or cover cropping, are there any resources that you would recommend?
1: Well. Any contact with the No-Till Alliance or going to meetings sponsored by the No-Till Alliance, uh, Conservation Districts, USDA NRCS, and Penn State Extension, Uh, attending any of those, getting to know a farmer that does successfully no-till. It's kind of interesting, farmers tend not to want to share their
0: secrets. (laughs)
1: You know, this this is why they're where they are, because of some things they've learned. I find very, very, I can never give an example where a farmer wouldn't share what he learned about no-till with someone that was trying to get into no-till. That's what's interesting when you go, and I've attended probably 10 or 12 national no-till meetings over my career. You learn more, and farmers learn more in the hallways between the sessions talking to other farmers than they do in the sessions. Mm-hmm. And that's all part of sharing that knowledge. They have probably half the speakers at the no-till conference are actually farmers. They've been there done that. So, and, and we have some publications out too, the, the, the couple that I've authored, co-authored, along with uh, going to the website. You can, Barry, you can Cheryl may have some
2: other inputs on that. I I think that Pennsylvania No-Till Alliance has been a good thing just for organizing some of the leading farmers with us. And they've been putting on events across the state, which are really good. Um, And as Joel said, it's farmers talking to other farmers, but I I think that's actually helped pull some of the other information providers along also. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's a lot of the... The equipment dealers and some of the uh, ag product suppliers are really good on this, also. Yeah. So mm-hmm. there's some good sources in the private sector. I'd say some of the agribusiness people. There's some consultants out there who are good. Yeah. That are also getting the word out.
1: Crop man- crop management right. folks, certified crop advisors, and if anyone's looking to purchase no-till equipment, they're they're new in this. If their local dealer doesn't Seem to be knowledgeable about equipping a no till planter properly, they need to talk to another dealer or talk to someone from No Till Lines or a no till farmer because there are dealerships out there that are really good at this. And then there's other ones that, well, whatever you want, I'll sell you.
0: All right. So. I'd like to thank both Joel and Barry for taking the time to speak with me while we conducted the survey. To learn more about Capital RC&D's work, including the survey, visit capitalrcd.org. Thank you for listening.